Welcome to the PD tour of the Francis Marion Trail podcast, following the driving trails developed by the Francis Marion Trail Commission in South Carolina. You'll hear stories of the Swamp Fox, the Revolutionary War hero, General Francis Marion. The podcast is a creation of the Florence Convention and Visitors Bureau with adaptations of stories collected by the Francis Marion Trail Commission. Some are historical accounts and others may be folklore. We'll let you listen and decide. This episode can be enjoyed while driving to Witherspoon's Landing, now known as Venter's Landing, near Johnsonville, South Carolina. I only wish they were 3,000. Marion County's widow Jenkins had encountered her share of difficulty and sacrifice during the war. She had, as evidenced by her title of widow, lost her husband. In addition, though, she had seen all three of her sons off to fight with Marion's brigade and was now the matriarch of a plantation in Britain's Neck. She did more than toil and worry, though. She added the name Jenkins to the role of those who helped win the revolution. British Lieutenant Colonel John W.T. Watson had been bested by Francis Marion's guerrilla tactics and had no choice but to retreat across the Sandpit River to Georgetown. Safely back in British-controlled territory, he complained of Marion and his men. Quote, They will not sleep and fight like gentlemen, but like savages, are eternally firing and whooping around us by night and by day, waylaying and popping at us from behind every tree. End quote. Determined to pursue his opponent, Watson rested his men only at a short while at Georgetown, and in April set out again. Passing through Lower Prince Frederick Parish, they crossed the PD at Britain's Ferry. Watson and his men reached the home of Widow Jenkins and camped in the sandfield, Watson taking advantage of the house for his headquarters. Defenseless, Jenkins had little choice but to give the British what they wanted. While both fiend courtesy, Jenkins and her unwelcome guest could not help attempting to get the best of each other through verbal jabs. She asked Watson if he had any difficulty getting from the ferry to her place, as Marion's men had torn up the bridges. No, madam, I never find any difficulty when on British ground. Do you not believe, madam, the British will conquer the Americans? No, sir, I wish I were as sure of heaven as I am that the Americans will gain their independence. And I think, sir, you believe it too. Watson flushed angrily. No, madam, I do not believe it, he replied. How many sons have you among the rebels, madam? None, sir, she said. The king has rebelled against us, and not we against the king. Well, madam, how many sons have you with Marion? I have three, sir, she replied. I only wish they were three thousand. Send for them, madam, Watson pleaded. Let them take protection, marry wives, and settle their plantations. Will you stay, sir, and protect them? No, madam, indeed, he replied, confident in British victory. It is enough for me to pardon them. Pardon them, sir, she retorted. They have not asked it yet. Exasperated, he asked her to have a glass of wine with him. As he raised his glass, he cried, Health to King George. Jenkins politely drank the toast and refilled the glasses. As Watson raised his glass again, she cried, Health to George Washington. Watson made a wry face, but being a gentleman, he cheerfully toasted the commander of the Continentals and then tried a gambit. Have you heard that General Marion has joined Lord Ralden? No, sir, indeed I have not, she retorted, knowing that her nephew had seen Marion the previous day. Well, madam, he insisted, it is a matter of fact. Sir, I don't believe it. Why, madam, you might as well tell me I lie. I don't say you lie, sir, she said with a smile, but I don't believe it. Watson was so vexed with his unwilling hostess that he moved his men a mile across the sandfields and camped at John Ray's for the night. 
Judith Ganey, and the Horse Thieves. Among the stories of daring deeds and courageous actions taken by South Carolinians during the Revolutionary War is the short anecdote regarding Judith Ganey, a 17-year-old from Marion County. Her story, handed down as folklore but backed up by documentation through numerous reputable publications, is a record of the heroic spirit of the Patriots. As the Ganey household prepared to settle in for the evening, they were surprised by a band of Tories, demanding the family's horses. Nightfall, it would seem, brought with it an opportunity for young Judith to test her mettle. The Tories were staunchly informed that the horses were in the pasture, and if they were so desired, those requesting them could fetch them. The soldiers, being unfamiliar with the horses, managed only to startle them into running around the pasture. While this commotion was transpiring, Judith stole away to the gate, slipped the bars, and turned the horses into nearby woods, preventing their theft. While this turn of events angered the group of soldiers, darkness prevented them from engaging in more than a reluctant retreat from the Ganey home, agitated but nonetheless horseless. Judith knew that still more needed to be done, however. She stole into the woods, threw a blanket on one of her favorite horses, and rode off into the night toward Francis Marion's camp on Snow's Island. Upon reaching the encampment, she gave information on the attempted raid. Marion dispatched a detachment of militia who managed to catch up with the Tories and engage them in a brief skirmish, resulting in the death of several of the enemy. Judith Ganey would return from her daring escapade and resume her quiet, ordinary life, eventually marrying and raising a family of proud Marion County residents. A gift of salt. Most would not think of salt as a weapon of war, but Francis Marion realized that, used properly, it could be as important as muskets or tactics. Marion had a genius for many things military, as well as great empathy for the plight of others. Evidence of this is that he understood a fundamental principle that apparently eluded most of the British and Tory adversaries, and more than a few of his allies. The principle that when waging guerrilla warfare or defending against guerrilla warfare, it is important to win the hearts and minds of the people who live in the contested area. In late December 1780, an opportunity presented itself for Marion to win more than a few hearts and minds. Even today, salt is important in making food tasty, and it is vital to maintaining an appropriate electrolyte balance in the body. Even more important in 1780 was the use of salt as a preservative for meat, particularly in warm climates like South Carolina. The ability to preserve meat in times of plenty could be the difference between starvation and survival during a harsh winter, or in times of sickness or injury, when obtaining food by hunting, fishing, or gathering was not practical. Refrigeration as we know it had not been invented, and there were only one or two other effective techniques for preserving meat and fish, so salt was a critically important commodity. The lives of the people in the backcountry in particular depended on their own resources to supply most of their needs, especially food. Salt in that time, as in the time of the Roman Empire, was not always readily available, and could be very expensive. The manufacture of salt from seawater and the mining of salt employed techniques that, by today's standards, seem primitive and very inefficient. The manufacturers of salt in the All Saints Parish on Waccamaw Neck extracted it from seawater in huge evaporation vats and sold it for ten silver dollars a bushel, an exorbitant price at that time. Few Whigs or Tories had gold or silver, and therefore their families ate unsalted meat and unsavory bread. On December 30, 1780, the Swamp Fox gave Captain John Postel orders to take some men down to the Black River to the region around the mouth of the Great Petey River to commandeer boats, weapons, and food to supply Marion's militia, and to deny those resources to the British garrison at Georgetown. 
Postel knew the terrain and the people of the lower Petey well, and as he inquired about salt in the region, he received information about a large treasure of it unguarded on the Waccamaw Neck near Georgetown. The British had stockpiled 150 bushels of salt, which they intended to use to preserve 60 head of cattle that they had collected. Apparently, the British thought the existence of their stockpile was a secret and had not posted a guard. Postel informed Marion of the treasure, and Marion immediately set a detachment with wagons and draft horses to bring this prize to his lair on Snow's Island. Marion then distributed some of his men and gave each Whig family in the area one bushel per household, thereby winning the gratitude of his men and the Patriot families. These were the families who provided the volunteers for Marion's brigade, supplied all kinds of goods, and provided information on British and Tory movements. Without their sacrifice and support, Marion and his little band of fighters could not have ridden into history. Major James fights Ardessois with a chair. Believing that Colonel Tarleton's brutal massacre of the defeated 3rd Regiment of Virginia Continentals at the Waxhaws had resulted in an end to all resistance in South Carolina, General Henry Clinton issued a proclamation that all paroles would therefore after be null and void. All parole holders were to reclaim the character of British subjects and participate in forwarding the military operations of Lord Cornwallis. To this end, Captain John Ardishois was put in command of the HMS Loyalist and soon set sail along the southern coast, posting the decree. Upon sailing into Winya Bay and dropping anchor off Georgetown, Ardishois was met by Major John James, who had been recruited by the Scotch-Irish of Williamsburg. James was to elicit clarification from Ardishois on the details of the decree, specifically regarding whether those who returned to British allegiance would have to take up arms against their fellow countrymen. James set about this quest for clarity atop his horse, Thunder, arriving at Ardishois' headquarters dressed as a simple planter. Ardishois, by contrast, was in full uniform, complete with his sword. When James asked his question, the response was short. Quote, the submission must be unconditional. He then inquired whether the South Carolinians would be allowed to stay at home upon their plantations and enjoy a peaceful existence. Captain Dardeschois, compelled to suffer no more questioning, declared that, in truth, they had rebelled against the king and were quite undeserving of pardon at all. Such rebellion, he went on, should rightly carry the sentence of hanging. The king's free pardon meant that they must take up arms in support of his cause, a condition James declared his people would not submit to. Quote, you damned rebel, shouted Ardeschois. Quote, if you speak in such language, I will immediately order you to be hanged up to the yardarm. Even with Ardeschois' sword in full view, Major James leapt to his feet, seized the chair upon which he had been seated, and proceeded to brandish it in his face. His quick action afforded him the moments necessary to back out of the door, jump astride thunder, and gallop off toward King Street. Upon his return, he relayed Ardeschois' sentiments to the men of Williamsburg. It was agreed that all would refuse to shed the blood of their countrymen, and that it was time to take up arms in support of that cause. What General Clinton might have assumed was a group of defeated men soon became the Williamsburg Militia. Francis Marion Takes Command of the Militias That Francis Marion was available to take command of the Williamsburg and Britain's Neck Militia is viewed by some historians as a miracle. Others call it coincidence or just extraordinary good luck. In February 1780, Marion's job was to command a training camp at Bacon's Bridge, located on the Ashley River near Charleston. 
This command left Marion enough free time that he was able to socialize in Charleston, even though it was evident, even then, that the British were building up to an assault on the city. One evening in March, Alexander McQueen invited him to supper at the McQueen home on Trod Street. Accounts of the evening vary, but all agree that at some point, McQueen locked the doors, announcing that all present would drink until they were well and truly drunk. Apparently, this was not an uncommon custom of the day. Some say that on this evening, McQueen determined to see Colonel Francis Marion, well known for his personal discipline, drunk. Not amused in the least, but gentlemanly enough not to cause a scene, Marion quietly slipped away from the dinner table to a window, jumping out to make his escape. The dining room, however, was on the second floor, and Marion's ankle, turning under, under his weight when he hit the ground, either broke or was dislocated. Again, accounts vary. With Major Isaac Carlston assigned to take over his command, Marion was transported by litter back to his home in Berkeley County in order to allow his ankle time to heal. In May, Charleston fell to the British, and suddenly Marion's broken ankle seemed more of a blessing than a curse. After the fall of Charleston, Marion and his good friend, Peter Ory, rode to North Carolina to make sure that they were not captured. Marion's ankle, while better, was still in such a condition that his faithful servant, Oscar, who rode with Marion throughout the Revolution, had to lift him up and down from his horse. One would imagine that during this time, Oscar was supremely grateful that he served Marion and not Ori, who was a large man, unlike the very small Marion. Shortly thereafter, Marion got the news that he was to command the Williamsburg and Britain's Neck militias, and almost three months to the day of the fall of Charleston arrived at Witherspoon's Ferry, now Johnsonville, to take that command. According to Judge William James, eyewitness account, Marion was still limping badly when he met his men. James, then age 15 and the son of Major John James, compiled a sketch of life with Marion and his brigade, which is much referred to today. Some of the militiamen had served with Marion in the past. Others had never seen him before and were not impressed by the appearance of the swarthy little man, dressed in a close-fitting red jacket, a leather cap whose silver crescent bore the words, Liberty or Death. Less than 500 men greeted Marion on the historic August day, not one of them supplied with full fighting equipment. They came armed with whatever guns they owned, muskets, shotguns, and fowling pieces. It is believed that the group, which became well known as McCautry's sharpshooters, were equipped with small-bore rifles. The guns, however, were useless without ammunition, and it's estimated that they had enough of that, mostly self-molded rifle balls, musket balls, buckshot, and birdshot, to sustain them in one half-hour battle. None had swords, bayonets, or pikes. One of Marion's first commands was for the men to raid area sawmills for blades that could be transformed by blacksmiths, among them into sabers. So began a movement that some believe eventually changed the world. At this time, you should be at or near your destination, Witherspoon's Landing, 